Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, a podcast on all things environmental policy brought to you by the investigative team of journalists at ENDS Report. I'm James Ajapong Parsons. In this episode, we'll be discussing why key requests from DEFRA agencies to strengthen environmental principles were ignored, how our most protected water sites are flatlining, and digging into ENDS analysis, which shows how Oxford ranks as the cleanest city in England. For our deep dive section this week, we're speaking with rewilding expert Ali Driver. So without further ado, let's enter the Eco Chamber. I'm joined by ENDS Reports editor Jamie Carpenter, features editor Tess Colley and reporter Shosha Aidy to help me deal with the deluge of environmental news this week. For our first big green story, we're talking about the significance of the government ignoring proposals from England's environmental watchdogs to strengthen its environmental principles policy statement. Green policy that is intended to help guide decision making processes in Westminster. Tess, what is the environmental principles policy statement? A mouthful. It's intended to, to guide ministers when making policy across Whitehorse and not just on environmental policy, but, you know, pretty much anything uh, on how to apply five key uh, environmental principles. And those are integration, prevention, rectification at source, polluter pays and I suppose the most controversial of them all, the precautionary principle. It was mandated by the Environment Act, Environment Act 2021, but it's still not in force and won't be until November. And in that time, we now know that it's not as strong as it could have been. Yeah, it, it seems not. So green groups have previously expressed concerns about the policy statement um, kind of weakening how these principles are applied um, because these are principles that kind of we had, you know, as part when we were part of the EU. So what this is is bringing it in in a new way. Following the release of some consultation documents under freedom of information requests, um, we now know that both the Environment Agency and Natural England have uh, expressed significant doubts to DEFRA privately uh, about about how it works. So in their responses, they explicitly asked for a few key things, particularly for the statement to include references to, to record keeping and the need, quoting here, for an audit trail of decision making, which they said would improve the transparency. Um, however, no such change was made when you compare to the, the final version we now have. Both agencies also highlighted how language around the precautionary principle um, weakened the environmental influence it may otherwise have. I think the EA in particular said, you know, it should be considered early on in policymaking, but appears last on the list of considerations. And again, that didn't change in the final version. Both agencies talk about this this emphasis on proportional application of the principles. And Natural England says the definitions and caveats in the policy statement, particularly around proportionality, make the application vague and that the regulator is concerned that this could lead to a lowering of environmental standards. But this also did not change in the final version. So I could go on. <laughs> I won't, though, don't worry. Um, but it's it's clear, basically, that a lot of concerns raised by, you know, DEFRA's biggest environmental agencies um, basically didn't didn't go heeded when this, this was finally drawn up. And in response, then, DEFRA have said what? So uh, I asked them about it, and a DEFRA spokesperson said, the government received constructive feedback and suggestions in the public consultation on the draft policy statement and in subsequent parliamentary scrutiny. This was considered carefully and resulted in improvements to the final policy statement published on the 31st of January 2023. I, I did see there was a, a few tiny improvements. I think there was a reference to, is it the Descriptor review yeah. in there? It's not the case that the final version didn't change at all. Um, and yeah, so... 
you know, Natural England said in its its response that, um, yeah, we you know there should be references to Dascript to review, um, and that's now in there. Uh, but the kind of the big stuff that I kind of talked about is this, you know, this bringing some transparency and strengthening these core principles, which which should be applied to all sorts of things. Those are the things that just didn't didn't really happen. Um, but you know, we this is this is all coming out after the consultation is finished and we've got the final version. It's just interesting to know. Absolutely, and and this will be taking effect from the 1st of November of this year. Yeah, that's right. On to our next big green story, and it's a stinker. Water pollution has been all over the news this week, with the water companies apologising for polluting our rivers and seas, and news that £10 billion in new infrastructure will follow. Now, a lot of the focus has been on the sewage, but there is another big problem. Shosha, what's the story that people should be talking about? Well, hot off the press, in the latest update to the government's indicator for the state of water in protected areas in England, the percentage of water habitats in an unfavourable declining condition, which is the worst category, doubled. So this was in an update to the page with data from December 2022, and this overrided the data previously displayed, which was from November 2019. So we compared the archive data um, with the new data, and found that the sites in this category jumped from 3% in 2019 to 6% in 2022. So we're talking about public data that you've analysed about protected sites of these water bodies in England. Yes, that's correct. And what sort of protected sites are we talking about here then? So the sites that are measured under this indicator are uh, European protected nature sites for water and wetlands, um, as you said, in England. This includes rivers, lakes, wetlands, estuaries and coasts and other water-dependent habitats, including sites that are designated for birds that may be um, in a favourable condition without an assessment of water quality. So the data also showed um, the underlying triple SSI unit conditions by habitat um, and it's based on drivers that are measured as per the Water Framework Directive. Um, by Natural England. And the Water Framework Directive, that's that's sort of our most important EU legislation around water quality and control, is that right? Yes, it's uh, one of those EU retained laws that people are worried about losing. And in the data analysis that you've looked at then, of those habitats, what have been the worst affected? So protected estuaries and coastal sites um, in the worst category, um, so unfavourable declining, saw the starkest change um, going from 3.5% in 2019 to 6.1% in 2022. Um, Lakes under the status also saw a significant increase going from 5.4% in 2019 to 8.3% in 2022. Um, Across the board, habitats deemed in favourable site declined. There's quite a lot of numbers. Um, So I'll let people, if they're interested, look at the graph um, on our website because this displays it it more. But we are talking about, in some cases, a doubling of, you know, the impact condition of these things, aren't we? These these percentage drop differences are significant. Yes, they are. They are um, significant. It's quite it's quite hard to tell from the data that we actually have because it's all um, from a derived analysis. So we just have the percentages. We don't actually have the base figures. Um, so there's like maybe a, there's so it's not as transparent then the government isn't quite as open with what they're assessing. Is that right? Yeah, I, I guess it's it's difficult to say, um, you know, what 
what meaningful analysis we can derive from it without the full suite of data. So in that sense, it would be great if it was a bit more transparent. And what have others then made of your findings? Um, so Fergal Sharkey, the former Undertones frontman um, turned environmental campaigner, said that this lack of transparency is disgraceful um, and he also made the point that we're designating these protected sites and we're not protecting them. Um, we also spoke to Chief Executive of the Wildlife and Countryside Link, Richard Benwell, who said the figures show we're going in the wrong direction um, in terms of protected waters for wildlife. And he also noted that when the government publishes their approach to 30 by 30 later this year, um, they have to show their workings on a plan to improve triple SI conditions across the board to have any sort of credibility. So quite strong statements there. And we're actually we're waiting for DEFRA to respond to us. Um, so hopefully they'll give us some more clarity and this will be included in the article. And for our final big green news story this week, we're looking at the cleanest city in all of England, Oxford. The birthplace of Stephen Hawking's, Miriam Margulies, and now the top of a new ends ranking of the best urban places in England. Jamie, how has Oxford topped the charts? Well, what, what, a, what a list to be included in. Um, so we've published recently our new Green Cities Index, so, and this is a a ranking of England's 55 primary urban areas, which, without getting too nerdy about it, it's a way of defining towns and cities. So, so the, the, these are basically large, large towns and cities. Um, and the index we did was a way of trying to rank those in terms of how how green those places were. And and in doing that, we had to think about a couple of things. So, one of them was for what I've touched on, I guess, what, what, what is a city? How do we define that? So we use this um, definition called primary urban areas. And then the other thing, which is slightly more complicated, is actually how how do you define how green something is? So there are kind of two parts to that. One, one is essentially going out there and getting all the data. So we found a load of data that we thought would help us judge whether a city was green or not um, and in the end we, we've got a basket of 35 indicators across five overarching categories so um, public realm which is about about green spaces green behavior which is about things like um, recycling behavior and commuting patterns and then also air quality water quality and climate um, so we have all that data and then once we had amassed all that data we had to essentially create an index with it so we use a data specialist and um, in doing that we had to consider what weightings we wanted to give each categories so in this in this index in in deciding how green something was we thought the most important categories were public realm and the green behaviors one so they, they had they had more weighting than than the other categories um, clearly a subjective thing so other people might have different views on what constitutes a green city or not but for, but for the purpose of this that's how we we did it and Oxford was top because it, it it performed very strongly on those two categories that we gave the most weight to so in particular it does it does very well on recycling so I think it's fourth or fifth in the country for recycling rates and it, the, the commuting behavior is very very green compared to other places so um that's a kind of very, very long-winded explanation as to why Oxford was top of the ranking. 
Who beat Oxford? Well, it, well, it was obviously hotly contested, but um, the city they will probably be most pleased about beating is actually Cambridge. So Cambridge were third. Um, I'd imagine there was a bit of um, beef after the boat race, which Cambridge Cambridge won. I think both the main and women's crews won earlier this year. Bitter. So Oxford has now got the prize that matters. Exactly. The prize that matters. So um, <laughs> so Cambridge, was there. Cambridge also does very well on, on some of the same indicators as Oxford. So things like um, the, the census data around commuting behaviour, they, they do very well on. That's things like walking, 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 walking <laughs> or cycling for any purpose for at least five times a week. You heard it here first, a new word has been invented on the eco chamber. That's it, that's it. And and Barnsley did well because they something to do with the accessibility to green and blue spaces. Yeah, so the um so Barnsley does very well on um the, the public realm category. So so some of those indicators, including that one that they, they score very highly on. So that's why Barnsley is at number two in, in the in the ranking. And if you're interested in knowing more about that list or how your city stacks up against others, why not head over to our website, endsreport.com. So now on to our deep dive section with me, Pippa Neal. For this week's Eco Chamber, I spoke to Alistair Driver, the Director of Rewilding Britain, the first and only countrywide organisation across England, Wales and Scotland focusing on rewilding and the benefits it can bring to people, nature and the climate. I began by asking him what rewilding actually means. Well, I'll give you a, a sort of tweetable definition, which I always like to start with, which is the large-scale restoration of ecosystems to the point where nature is allowed to take care of itself. So that's a very short definition, but there are a couple of things that then need to qualify in that. One is, what do we mean by large-scale? And in Britain, we don't, be, we don't mean very large at all, really, certainly in England and Wales. Um, so we would consider, for example, anything over 100 hectares uh, to have potential for rewilding in terms of in terms of scale. But ideally, you'd be de- you'd be talking about thousands of hectares, mm-hmm. but nothing like the scale of some of the great wild places in other countries like the, the American national parks, for example. So that's the first thing. The scale matters. Size matters. And the second thing is this bit about to the point where nature is allowed to take care of itself. You've got to remember that this is this is representing a spectrum of activity, and the word rewilding is a present participle. Rewilding it's an ongoing process, moving in a direction, and you could you could say that once you've got to that point where nature is truly taking care of itself, then you've rewilded. But let's focus on the rewilding because we are a long way off the top of that spectrum because we haven't got apex predators we haven't got a lot of the large herbivores we once had and so there's there's a lot of missing bits of the trophic system that we need to replace um, before we get to that point and i know like obviously that all sounds amazing but i know that for some some people like farmers for example find the phrase or the term rewilding quite a scary concept mm with concerns that it could mean, you know, land, like essentially land abandonment and concerns around the impact it means for food production and things mm. like that. Do you think it's possible to persuade farmers that rewilding isn't something to be afraid of? Well, I keep, we, we keep trying and, you know, and gradually we are winning people over to understand that, first of all, it's voluntary. Mm. If you don't want to rewild on your land, then don't. If you want to keep producing food or farming your land in the way that you have been, or you, you want to make your own decisions about a different type of farming, that's great, that's fine, that's your choice. So it's, in, first of all, entirely voluntary. Second thing is that it is, qu- it is quite feasible for us to 
rewild a significant part of this country without impacting on food production. And there's a lot of myth around that, oh, you know, you're gonna, how, are you, how are we going to feed the world if you start rewilding? Well, let's first of all remember that 70% of the country is farmed at the moment, approximately. And based on the stats we've got, only, probably if you include Scotland, only about 1% of the country is in rewilding. 70%, 1%. So there's a long way that we could go to close that gap a bit, to get a better balance back into our countryside. And um, Hen Henry Dimbleby's um, food strategy a couple of years ago cited the fact that 20% of our land in this country produces 3% of our calorific need. So right there is a clear stat that shows you could easily rewild a significant percentage. And, you know, we at Rewilding Britain, you know, we're hoping that we will probably have say five percent core rewilding and another 25 percent of sort of nature friendly land use which you might call managed rewilding um to achieve 30 by 30 for example and that is in you know we believe that is entirely doable and we're currently producing maps of food production wildness etc to demonstrate exactly where and how that might be doable mm. i know you described uh, like these these kind of concerns around food production as being myths but um mm. Do you ever get, you know, concerned or annoyed about kind of media coverage around rewilding? Because I saw, for example, I think it was over the weekend, Jeremy Clarkson's column in The Times um, called, what, what was the title? It said, rewilding is great if you don't mind going hungry. Mm. So I just, you know, is this frustrating for you? And It is a bit when we've been through it over and over again and we've we explained what I've just told you, that it's easily possible to rewild significant areas without impacting on food at all. But the other key facts that you, you have to bear in mind is, uh, is, for example, that we waste 40% of the food we produce to eat. 40%. It's a staggering, staggering figure. That's millions and millions of tonnes worth of food every year. So if there's a food security issue, why aren't we doing something very, very significant about that? Mm -hmm. And if you reduce that 40% to, say, 20%, <laughs> you could rewild even more than we're suggesting uh, without impact. So, so uh, the simple truth is that it's food pricing, distribution and waste that are the problems around food. Nothing to do with rewilding whatsoever. Sorry, Jeremy, love your programme, very entertaining, but you're miles off the facts. <laughs> so we kind of know what the problems are and we know, in theory, what the solutions are too, but... I was just wondering kind of your thoughts on how well we're doing. So I know that in May 2021, Natural England launched the England Species Reintroduction Task Force. Mm. Um, but I thought it was quite interesting. I was watching a cross-party inquiry on species reintroduction um, the other month. I think it was in March, which you were part of. Yeah. Um, and this task force was described as being nebulous and not fit for purpose. <laughs> what, what are your thoughts? Do you think, you know, is the government doing enough? And is this task force kind of doing... Well, I was involved in public service for 34 years in, in uh, the water, Thames Water Authority, National Rivers Authority, Environment Agency. I did 15 years as head of conservation at the Environment Agency, so I'm used to task forces and strategies uh, uh, and you know programmes of work that come and go. Mm -hmm. So it all depends on what clout that task force has got in terms of government. Will government listen to it? I've been involved with plenty of task forces in the past which haven't been listened to. I've just been involved in one with the London Mayor, the London Rewilding Task Force, which has been listened to, produced a fantastic report on rewilding in London, 
and and uh, approximately a million pounds to back it up to get to get a program of work started. So it can be done, but it's all about you know the, the power that it has, uh, how government responds. Uh, I I trust that it has the right mix of people on it. You know, I, I was concerned, and I did. I think I mentioned it in the inquiry, in response to a question that I thought it was a it was a bit academic heavy that you need land manage you know good uh, selection of land managers and practitioners on there um, who who are directly connected with what's going on on the ground. But as we know, it will ultimately all depend on on the government ministers and, and what they think about it. And, you know, as you know, <laughs> at the moment, we we are struggling with uh, with our Secretary of State, you know, to, to get her to understand the merits of this. I think this is what you might be referring to, that at the National um, Farming Union <clears throat> Conference, when Therese Coffey kind of said that, I've got the line here, she said that she won't be supporting the reintroduction of species like wolves and lynx, mm. um, despite the task force later telling um, MPs that they'd not been consulted on this. Yes, so, right. I, you yeah. know, do you think that, you know, that marks the end of the road? What what does that say about the task force? Yeah, it certainly doesn't mark the end of the road. It's just her opinion. She will have nothing to do with the future decision-making because she won't be around for very long in that role, obviously, because we see, we see a lot of turnover anyway, but... Um, there's election not far away and secretaries of state, you know, change very regularly. So I described her as ecologically illiterate, you know, because she was lumping together lynx and wolves. And they're two completely separate situations mm-hmm. with two completely different types of scenario and consideration. So just lumping those two blithely together and, and saying that, you know, showed that she didn't really know anything about the subject. Um, and anyway, she was speaking to the NFU, so she had just saying what they wanted her to say but it doesn't it doesn't really matter what she thinks at this point in time because a lynx and wolf would reintroduction wouldn't happen in such a short space of time while she was in charge anyway what matters is that in the meantime and this is what is happening people are gradually building the case for lynx reintroduction which which will happen long before wolf reintroduction um and in scotland there's recently been a you know a scottish government um, discussion and consultation on this so so things are moving forward and sooner or later there will be proposals coming to government for them to consider and then the Secretary of State and the, and the team at that time will be the ones that need to be persuaded. So from your conversations you don't think that line represents policy or where the government... Uh, it represents at? her thinking at this point in time she hadn't consulted her task force as you already mentioned because uh, they made it quite clear that that was that was the case. Um, so it was just her opinion. Okay, so it doesn't. It means nothing. Mm, okay, and I think the reintroduction of links is you know a really exciting idea, but also a bit <clears throat> bit scary, I guess, because we're thinking of you know these apex predators potentially in our um, you know countryside. Can you explain to listeners why you think reintrodu- reintroducing links is a good idea? Yeah. Um, it. The first thing is to un- is is to understand the ecology of the species, and you know I touched on that when I talked about the differences between wolf and lynx. They're very different. So so the Eurasian lynx is actually a very shy and secretive species. You know it's a stealth predator and it inhabits you know scrub and woodland areas, and it feeds in and around very secretly secretively in and around those areas. There have been lynx reintroductions and expansion of ranges in Europe. And there's a lot of information about how to manage that uh, and how to cope with it. The 
some of the key benefits are that you are restoring a, an apex predator to the system, so they will help to control mesopredators, and we have far more mesopredators like corvids, you know, crow family and, and foxes, for example, in this country than, than we ever had historically, because we, we eradicated the apex predators and they helped to control them. Um, so actually controlling, you know, the lynx, for example, will predate on foxes. Um, they will also predate on roe deer. We've got far more deer in this country than ever in history. So top prey items uh, on, on the continent are deer, like roe deer. So they, they can contribute significantly to a better balance uh, in the food web. But then, of course, there are challenges around them killing livestock. So it is, yes, of course, the case that if there were sheep very close to a woodland edge where a, a lynx was hunting at night, then if there were sheep there, they would probably take them. So we have to then be sensible about how we manage the landscape. And that means uh, uh, either not having sheep in and around those woodland areas uh, and other small livestock like them, or, or it means perhaps utilising some of the dog the dog breeds that they use to manage, you know, to keep predators away from sheep herds on the continent. Um, so these are, it's not beyond the wit of man to be able to manage these situations. And, and as, as I explained to the committee when I was talking about beavers, you know, in the case of beavers, the, the benefits massively outweigh the disbenefits of having beavers back in the countryside. And, and so, too, do the benefits of having links back in the countryside. They, they outweigh the disbenefits. Uh, it's not as an extreme a case as, as beavers, I would argue, but it's nevertheless significant. And we need to think about what's right for the environment as a whole overall, you know, mm. benefits v disbenefits. Yeah, and I think obviously when you describe the, the solutions, it does sound quite straightforward. But I know in <clears> Norway, for example, um, it is quite a big problem there from what I've read. Like I was, I was struggling to find some more recent statistics, but in 2017, NFU Scotland said that in Norway, authorities had paid out compensation for almost 20,000 sheep killed by predators, including lynx. So, you know, is this a problem that, you know, that this is... Yeah, well, the, the thing is they paid that, they've paid that out without any verification of the kills. So, so you know, the world and his wife making claims without, without actual verification and auditing. Um, the other thing to remember is that on, on some parts of the continent, like Scandinavia, um, you, ha you have a lot of sheep grazing in woodlands, and that is bound to bring uh, lynx into contact with sheep in particular in those sort of landscapes. So what we need to see, to get to the point really, is what we need to see is future environmental land management schemes, like, uh, like the one we have being developed in England, rewarding farmers for managing their land in a way which enables them to tolerate that situation, i.e. either excluding sheep from woodland marginal fields or accepting that they'll be there and there will be some losses. Um, we don't, compensation is not the way to go because it's so fraught mm -hmm. for exploitation. Um, and, and actually, you know, there's quite a strong call for that from the, uh, uh, the panel that, that I was on when we were uh, on the EFRA committee. A call for compensation? No, for, for, for not no going down the compensation route. It's not, it's not the way to go. It's, it's too ripe for exploitation. Mm. <clears throat> um, and you mentioned beaver reintroduction. So obviously that's something that's already happening mm. in um, across the UK. 
but I, I visited um it was really interesting actually like last year I visited a beaver enclosure in organized by the Cheshire Wildlife Trust yeah. but obviously it was in an enclosure yeah. and we know that beavers you know have the potential to have a huge impact on our ecosystems like helping with flood risk um, and drought management and things like that but like do we need to have beavers outside of enclosures? Like, what kind of scale of reintroduction do we actually need to see a difference? Yes, we. Yeah, well, it's been quite frustrating for me to see the government still dragging its heels on this, and again, that's partly down to the Secretary of State's attitude. Um, so, so we. Uh, I was first consulted on beaver introduction in 1987. So a very long time ago, and and I'm still waiting for it actually to happen legally, officially. Uh, in the right places in in England and Wales. In the meantime, though, we have several, in fact, I know of at least eight wild beaver populations in England and Wales, and they are steadily expanding their range. So they're here anyway. It would be much better if if those populations, if, if we were releasing beavers in a strategic way with the right management plans in place, uh, the right you know, the right sort of exit strategy if we needed an exit strategy. I was on a group uh, which helped to produce, you know, a management plan decision-making process for government. It's it's very robust process uh, and and it should, should be rubber-stamped by government and applied because um, there's a lot of experts put a lot of time into it and NFU were part of that process. So, so we, we know what to do. And we actually, we know where to do it because there's been a lot of mapping of where the best places are and where there's going to be the least conflict, etc. But in the meantime, beavers are steadily um, expanding their range in these small pockets that are dotted around the country. The enclosures, well, I, I don't have a problem with enclosures, personally. Um, a lot of people say, oh, it's just another enclosure. But actually, it is a way of helping to bring local communities on board because every enclosure that exists, basically, the vast majority of local people love the fact that they've got beavers there uh, uh, and and it's been a it's been an excellent way of bringing more and more uh, getting more and more support for for the long-term uh, releases to the wild so so actually it is a stepping stone i hope that one glorious day in certain parts of the country there will be properly developed programs which enable these enclosures to have the gates opened on them and mm. away we go I know you mentioned there like the political will perhaps kind of slowing down mm. this process, but I think it did feel like under Boris Johnson's government that there was a bit more momentum behind this with yep. figures, you know, like Zach Goldsmith and Michael Gove kind of supporting yep. reintroductions. Do you think it's slowed down? Like, do you think the yeah, kind of yeah. attitudes have changed? I mean, I, I have to say that period, uh, and it was particularly Michael Gove and Lord Goldsmith, that period saw the most positive support I have ever seen for large-scale nature recovery and I've been involved for a very long time you know this I'm 45 years in conservation now and probably 35 of that in you know in national policy stuff and um, and that was the most dramatic and exciting time uh, and now we've gone back to where we were 20 years ago basically with the current regime which is which is sad but like I say it's temporary and in the meantime under the radar there's lots of um, planning and development and consultation going on. Um, uh, and, you know, we, we are chipping away at government to press the green light on beaver releases, you know, to actually, we've, we've written to them through Wildlife and Countryside Link asking for a date when they would allow formal applications to, to be applied for. 
they haven't they still haven't responded but we will keep chasing nice and i guess as you say with a general election on the horizon you know things yeah. could change quite quickly yeah. so um you mentioned about the london rewilding task force and i mm. think that is really interesting because in a city like london it's kind of hard to imagine what rewilding even even looks like mm. um and when I was reading about the task force, I saw, um, I think it, they identified nine zones mm. for potential rewilding. So what, you know, what in a dream scenario, what does it look like to rewild a city yeah. like London? Well, um, there's a few things to say there. First of all, uh, large scale rewilding is absolutely paramount. If if you haven't got that as part of a, a plan uh, in an uh, you know urban or rural context, but you haven't got large scale re rewilding as part of the plan. It's probably not rewilding. It's probably more like localized nature conservation. But they, we, what we've done on that task force is, is split is split the proposals into three different types. You've got small scale rewilding, which could be you know very small public parks, um, uh, areas of local green space, etc. Small patches. We've got stepping stones, which would be particularly, for example, along river corridors, trying to create wilder zones along river corridors, thin strips, uh, and indeed along infrastructure networks, you know, railways and highways, etc. Uh, and then we've got the large-scale rewilding. So what, I, what I've been insistent on on that, on that group is that you must have that large-scale rewilding in there. If you don't deliver anything on any of that, then it's not a significant step forward. So that's the first thing to say. We aren't. We're not excluding the small scale, but the large scale is critical. Then, then, so then you say, okay, well, where can we find these places? Well, there are a lot of big public parks in London for a start, and a lot of them are quite manicured. So we could be looking at some of those places um, for a much uh, more natural process-led approach. And actually, also, you'd be surprised at what green space there is inside London. You know, Enfield have got a couple of thousand acres of rural land inside the M25, Enfield Borough. Mm -hmm. So I've been to visit them a few years ago to talk rewilding, and they now have a beaver enclosure, and they are now on the rewilding journey. Um, so you could do quite significant things in that particular location. But the other important thing is that I've encouraged them to look outside of the, the Greater London boundary. You, you can't, you know, with most of our cities, you can't just focus just within the boundary. You need to be dealing with and communicating with neighbouring councils just outside because often it's in those in that sort of green belt wild belt area that you you will find opportunities for for Londoners to still access high value nature mm. so um, those those are some of the key opportunities and principles that we focused on mm. and I was wondering I, I was reading um, something <clears throat> I think it was from quite a while ago I think 2021 by the Rivers Trust where they you know warned that parts of rivers in England aren't fit for beavers because of kind of the amount of damming that's happened and that there's just not necessarily the right food or habitats. Do you, you know, is is that like in London, for example, is that a problem that we could introduce these beavers, but they're just the rivers, you know, are kind of blocked and that's not appropriate? Uh, no, no, that's no, I would say that's not correct. I, you know, beavers are very versatile. Not that we would necessarily introduce them in London in, in certain areas, because obviously there, there, there'd be a, a much greater likelihood of beaver damming causing uh, flooding to infrastructure and uh, riverside properties, etc. Um, so, you know, you have to be very sensible and strategic about where beavers are reintroduced into the wild. And generally speaking, you wouldn't start with the middle of cities because of 
the human infrastructure that might be impacted. But it is, you know, I know from my experience of seeing, yeah, I've seen most of the enclosures, I've seen pretty much all the wild sites in this country. Um, they are incredibly versatile. They will create amazing wetlands out of relatively small amounts of water. I mean, you know, quite small streams. They will still uh, engineer them in a way that then holds more water in the landscape and creates ponds and, and ditches, connecting ponds, etc. So it's amazing what they can do. And they are very, very cosmopolitan in terms of their diet, you know, in terms of the vegetation that they eat. So, um, no, I think they do very happily on many rivers inland. My final question, which I think kind of represents what we've been talking about, is that the rewilding conversation gets a bit bogged down with conversations around lynx and wolves, which perhaps are a long way off mm. when, you know, we could be reintroducing smaller species like plants and insects, which could be having, you know, perhaps a greater difference. Do you think the conversation and, you know, public perceptions of rewilding needs to needs yeah. to shift? Well, you know, I've gone along with this conversation where we have focused on those controversial species because, you know, I know that's what you wanted to talk about. But normally when I'm having a conversation about species reintroductions, I will quickly explain to them that, uh, I, you know, we've been collecting data from 50 projects. I've personally assessed 50 projects across England and Wales. Uh, we assess, amongst other things, who's doing what in terms of interventions on those projects to kickstart the recovery of natural processes. And we've got, I've got a list so far of 26 different interventions. Species reintroduction is one of 26 interventions mm. on rewilding projects. So that's the first thing to say. It's just one particular activity to kickstart recovery of biodiversity and natural processes. Second thing to say is we've also got a list of all the species that people are considering as part of that one intervention. And the list is currently a list of 54 species. And not on that list are lynx, wolf, bear, elk, <laughs> and wild boar. None of, none of those five species are on the list of 54 that people are either doing or considering doing. Uh, but on the list are, yes, things like beaver. Beaver's most popular. Um, pine martin, water vole, white stork, uh, uh, um, black grouse. But then all the way down through various lower plants, lower plants, mycorrhizal fungi even um all the way down you know it's and, and there's so much more to it than just these apex predators and big herbivores mm. yeah i think it is like we're talking about this kind of sense of culture wars around re rewilding it feels like maybe the conversation's got a bit lost somehow and we need to kind of yeah i mean it, it, in in a way if if that's all people have got in terms of an a counter rewilding argument then I'm happy because nobody is currently looking at that. What we're currently looking at trying to do is restore natural processes at scale, restoring land, healthy, vibrant nature. And that is happening. That's what these rewilding projects are doing. I have the privilege of visiting and revisiting projects and the transformation on some of these projects in terms of the sheer numbers of wildlife. Invertebrates, for example, where you can walk through a field and there are grasshoppers pinging everywhere and the whole place is buzzing and sizzling with life. It's fantastic. So, so you know, what we're doing is definitely working, um, but we do gradually need to rebuild these trophic layers in due course. But we must remember that it's a very long-term activity, rewilding, uh, you know, ongoing. Mm. Amazing. Well, I think we'll end it there. It's been a really fascinating conversation, and I guess listeners watch this space. Maybe there will be links, you know, in the countryside <laughs> in the future, but if not... 
you know there's lots of other exciting things happening as well so great thanks for coming it's been a great thank you wow links back in the landscape can you imagine it well as you try that's the end of our podcast episode thank you to tess jamie shosha pippa and ali driver who've taught me that calls for tougher environmental policies has been falling on deaf ears in defra that our most protected water sites in England are in dire straits. Oxford is as clean as it is brainy, according to our new Cities Index analysis. And rewilding in this country seems to be naturally spreading across Great Britain, regardless of the welcome it receives. If you're interested in hearing about any of the stories we've been reporting on today, please head over to our website, endsreport.com. For any heresies, likes, dislikes, or things we need to be talking about, please email us ecochamber at haymarket.com In the meantime, please consider taking out a subscription and maybe share this podcast with a friend. See you later.